Hello and welcome to the podcast for the June 2011 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined by Rob Briley to discuss some of the issue highlights. Welcome Rob. Hi Richard. Let's start with a research article and this concerns uh, future colorectal cancer risk and it relates to the measurement of faecal blood concentrations. Give us the context to this study. What was the background and aim of this research article? Faecal occult blood tests are a common tool for population-based screening for colorectal cancer. The tests look for traces of blood from the gastrointestinal tract. When participants are found to have faecal occult blood concentrations over a specific level, which varies from test to test, participants are referred on to receive further clinical investigations to look for colorectal neoplasia. In this paper, the authors postulate that when using quantitative tests which measure haemoglobin concentrations on a continuous scale, concentrations under the normal referral cutoff might also be informative and could be used to stratify participants by future risk of colorectal neoplasia. I see, Rob. So go ahead and uh, briefly summarise the methodology and the key findings from this study. The authors exploited data from a large prospective cohort study in Taiwan that began in 1999 to screen for five cancers, including colorectal, and a number of non-neoplastic diseases. Participants found to be disease-free at baseline screen were followed up for subsequent colorectal neoplasia. The authors found that for participants with a negative faecal occult blood test at baseline, higher baseline concentrations of haemoglobin were associated with an increased risk of incident colorectal neoplasia. So what do these results mean in terms of what the authors conclude from the study? The findings have several implications. For one, baseline faecal occult haemoglobin concentrations below the current positive cutoff could serve as a means to stratify patients into different risk groups and individually tailored screening strategies. Knowledge of subsequent risk may also encourage people to participate in subsequent rounds of screening. Uptake has been a problem in a number of programmes, particularly in rural communities. However, one should note that the findings here must be validated in other countries and with other faecal occult blood tests before they can be implemented into practice. Next, Rob, we're going to discuss a study, and this concerns Lee-Frameni syndrome. This is a syndrome whereby people are at an increased risk of cancer or cancers than the general population. What was the aim of this? It's a surveillance study, isn't it? What was the aim of this study? Clinical surveillance strategies have been implemented for several cancer susceptibility syndromes. However, the diverse range of tumours, variability in age of onset and an absence of evidence for the effectiveness of screening for individuals with Lee-Framani syndrome have meant that screening has not been used thus far in this setting. In this study, David Malkin and colleagues have developed a practical surveillance protocol using non-invasive biochemical and imaging techniques, for example regular blood tests, MRI and ultrasound, to manage patients with Lee-Framani syndrome. In this prospective observational study, they followed members of eight families with Lee-Faramani syndrome, some of whom chose to undergo surveillance and some who chose not to. And the results seem striking, Rob, very clearly for those families who, or those individuals who selected to undergo surveillance, they had, they had very different results to those who were not under surveillance. That's right, Richard. The surveillance protocol identified 10 neoplasms in seven individuals, all of which were asymptomatic at the time of detection. After treatment, all patients were alive after a medium follow-up of 24 months. By contrast, 10 of the 16 participants followed prospectively in the non-surveillance group developed cancer, of whom only two were alive at last follow-up. These results seem to have clear implications for the management of people who are at an increased risk of cancer. So what do the authors conclude? The authors conclude that genetic screening of at-risk patients should be done, and this information used to enrol patients into structured, comprehensive surveillance programmes. However, they do state that further multi-centre prospective studies are necessary to assess long-term outcomes of patients undergoing surveillance. Next, Rob, let's discuss a report from the Reno group, and this concerns low-grade gliomas, or LGG. Why is it important to report or to have a focus on LGG? We don't hear a lot about them, do we? Although less aggressive than high-grade glioma, 
The outcome for patients with low-grade gliomas is usually death, and patients are likely to experience disabling morbidity both as a direct result of the tumour and of its treatment. Traditionally, trials in oncology focus on overall survival as the primary endpoint. However, this may not be appropriate for patients with low-grade glioma. The productive nature of the disease makes long-term follow-up very expensive, for instance, and the potential effects of salvage treatments after progression could obscure initial treatment effects. Furthermore, difficulties exist in radiological monitoring of the disease, since progression is generally characterised by small, incremental and asymptomatic increases in size. This report from the RANO group aims to update current outcome assessment criteria. So what are the main recommendations and conclusions of the RANO group? The group have put together a comprehensive list of response criteria based on both radiological and clinical criteria, the latter including measures of cognition, seizure activity and quality of life, for instance, to incorporate into trial design to better capture clinical benefit. If you look at the actual paper, panel 2 provides a helpful summary of these criteria. And finally, Rob, an interesting comment with a, an intriguing title. TB and cancer, a complex and dangerous liaison. Tell us about the background of this liaison, Rob. A link between TB and increased risk of lung cancer has long been suspected. This comment summarises recent population-based studies looking at this relationship and explores potential mechanisms. For instance, the inflammation and fibrosis caused by TB may help promote the development of cancer, together with increased levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is involved in the body's fight against mycobacterium tuberculosis, and which can also promote tumor cell survival. And there is also evidence that cancer can promote reactivation of TB, perhaps as a result of malnutrition or the effects of radiotherapy and chemotherapy. I notice the authors actually offer a practical guide in terms of how one should approach the possible interaction of uh, TB with cancer and vice versa. Do you want to elaborate on that? The authors argue that there are a number of factors that should be borne in mind, particularly in areas where the burden of TB is high. Perhaps of greatest significance is that in countries in which there is a huge emphasis on TB, healthcare workers should also be aware that the radiological features and symptoms of TB and lung cancer are similar, and one can mask one another, making differential diagnosis difficult and possibly resulting in delays in the diagnosis of lung cancer. And also the authors call for increased awareness about this issue. It's not known about enough, is it? That's one of the main problems. Indeed, increased awareness of the risk of TB in patients with cancer is needed, particularly in low-burden countries, and vice versa. Awareness of the risks of lung cancer in patients with previous or suspected TB is needed in developing countries. Thanks, Rob. And finally, are there any other items in the June issue that you would just like to briefly highlight? Yep, there's an interesting news article on the link between tumor necrosis factor blockers and rare lymphomas. In the article section, there's a, a, a paper looking at um, predicting sensitivity to taxane-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer a meta-analysis on sentinel lymph node procedures in colorectal cancer, a paper looking at the risk of liver cancer in patients with chronic hepatitis B, and a paper looking at the long-term outcomes of the TME trial. And in the review section, in addition to the RANO group's paper, we have a paper looking at KRAS, BRAF, and P10 mutations and their implications for targeted therapy for metastatic colorectal cancer. Many thanks, Rob. Those are some of the highlights from the June 2011 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Thanks for listening. More next month.